following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we learn about Ruth, we ask that her story would be one that blesses us. That over the coming weeks, as we learn about this woman of faith, you would have places where we learn not only about a fellow saint, but also the reality of what it means to be one of your people and what it means for you to be our Savior. In your Son, Jesus' name, amen. I had some great grandparents. I had great grandparents, but I had some great, comma, grandparents. And each of them had a unique skill. My grandfather, Curtis, who was my dad's dad, was just a lot of fun to be around. He was the guy who was stealing your nose all the time. He was the one telling grandpa jokes. He was the one who would build rubber band rifles for you. He was the one who made me and Matt and our cousins sleep above the garage in the attic. He was awesome. My grandpa, Harold, who was my mom's dad, I actually didn't get to know too well. I know about who he is from the stories my mom tells because when she was in college, he was the handyman janitor for their church in Minnesota and something had been thrown on top of a shed. He climbed up on a ladder and got it down and on the way down missed a rung and fell and had brain damage that continued to get worse that by the time I can remember him, he was in a pretty bad state. But there were moments of clarity with him where you could see the joy he had in having grandchildren. And I'll always be blessed by that and the stories my mom told of him. His wife, Caroline, my grandmother, Caroline, could cook like no one's business. She worked in the local Lutheran school, which was right across the street from their house, as the lunch lady when that was like you were cooking. It wasn't let's pull out and we're going to reheat. So everything was made from scratch every day. And so you showed up at grandma's and you knew her Minnesota garden was always going to be full. I remember my mom just picking up black dirt and going, Texas doesn't have this. And that was her strong, proud Minnesotan claim. And I'll tell you what, eating raspberries off the bush at Grandma Doling's is a memory I will treasure forever. And there's my Grandma Ruth. Grandma Ruth is my dad's mom. Her last known name was Gigi for Great Grandma. It's fun that some of my nieces have good memories of Gigi because she was in care close to where they grew up. But Grandma Ruth was a storyteller. She was a Lutheran school teacher her whole life. In fact, when I got to college, I had friends going here to Concordia, Texas, which is a tiny Lutheran world at times, that would say, I had your mother, your grandmother, for eighth grade substitute English at Emmanuel in Giddings. And I said, I know, I've taken showers in that gymnasium. Because Grandma and Grandpa moved, they had 
lived most of their lives in Galveston and on the island. And then as their kids all kind of moved inland, you know, in the great country of Texas, but it was more Houston, Austin, San Antonio. They wanted to be in the middle of all their grandkids. So they took over my grandma Ruth's, her parents' house in Giddings. And it was two houses down from the Lutheran church there. And I remember showering in the boys' locker room several times because grandpa was the head elder, so he had keys. (laughs) But grandma Ruth, she didn't cook like grandma Caroline. She She couldn't tell jokes like grandpa. She couldn't pull apart an engine like my grandpa Harold. But what grandma Ruth could do was tell a story. And you could tell why she was an educator because she would use a story to teach you a lesson. And sometimes it was beautiful. And sometimes you were like, I get it, Grandma. But I knew, especially in some of my last memories of them before they started into some memory issues, was when I would drive from Concordia home to Houston. And Giddings is right along the way. So I knew where my bathroom stop was going to be. That didn't mean I wasn't stopping at Bucky's and getting for snacks, too. But I would stop there on North Leon at my grandparents' daring for rock-hard pecan cookies. Because like I said, Grandma Ruth was not a baker, but she was so excited you were there, so you got some, some kind of pecan cookies. And then she just wanted to hear how you were doing. I'd share about Concordia, and she'd share about her days with Grandpa, supporting Concordia and the time they spent sending kids there. We'd talk about different things, but I have fond memories of her telling these incredible stories and her deep faith in Jesus. So as we dive into the book of Ruth, as, as I was preparing, there was just no doubt connection there for me. That this book of Ruth, which my grandmother was named after, is an incredible story of a woman who exemplifies the faith for us and reflects the good news of who God is. That her story, this historical account of a woman who lived thousands of years ago, can bless us today. And so we're going to dive in for the next three weeks to this book of Ruth. It's four chapters. And we're going to do basically verse by verse as much as we can. So if you've got a Bible on an app, on a phone, um, if you have one with you, go ahead and pull that out. Because we are literally, now it'll be on the screen, but I also want to help you see it's actually in your Bible that you use. I want you to take some notes in that. You know, you can do that on the app too. You can take notes. But we're going to spend time going through, verse by verse, Ruth 1 today. Now, first off, I want to, I want to share with you guys a resource. So this was gifted to me when I graduated from seminary. I had already had one, but it was about three times this size, because it was the hardbacked one, which is the Lutheran Study Bible, put out by Concordia Publishing House. Now, I, I'm a man of a certain age now, that I love this Bible because of its size, But also, we're getting to a point that I don't love this Bible because of its size. (laughs) 
playing a little trombone when I open this Bible sometimes. Okay, here we go. (laughs) But here's what I love. Um, I have a larger one of this. Now, I'll tell you what, I have become an app Bible guy. Got on my iPad, got on my phone. So if I am on the go, I'm going to pull out my app to read the Bible. This does not usually live in my backpack. Because even this small Lutheran study Bible is about 14,000 pounds. When you put it in a backpack, it just multiplies. I don't get it. The hardbacked one I have of this is great for weighing down napkins in a windstorm. But I keep these on my desk because the study notes in it are incredible. That a lot of what we're going to talk about today is stuff that I've gleaned from the simple study notes put in here. It's not a full-on commentary. It's not going to deep dive the languages. It's not going to give you all of the background. But it's going to give you at the bottom of every page is going to be study notes. And the theologians who put this together, the church body, like it, it is a blessing to have these. So if you're looking, you're saying, hey, I, I want to study a little deeper. I don't want to invest. I looked last night. If I wanted to buy the uh, commentaries that our church body puts out for the whole Bible, it would cost me $2,500. And I said, you know what? I'm good right now using some of this and, and pulling up some other Ruth resources I have. But it is a huge blessing to have these notes. And so, in fact, let's start here in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab Moab, and remained there. And that's why you pay to go to seminary. So you can pronounce Elimelech. Of course, there are enough other pastors in this room that I'm sure I'm going to find out later. It was wrong, but that's fine. That's okay. Now let me show you what I love about this Bible, because the first thing that jumps to my mind here as we read, in the days when the judges ruled... So here's the study note there. These events took place within an 11-year period during the time of the judges. Ruth was likely written during David's reign. So here we have this little note about what's going on. And and I love that the writer of Ruth gives us that time frame, that, that time period of the judges. So the judges, that time period was before King Saul. But after the people had come out of exile in Egypt and in the desert, they'd come into the promised land. They had taken the land that was promised to them. And so in that they come in and God says, listen, I will be your king and you will be my people. You don't need a king because I'm your king. Trust me. So what he would do is that when trouble arose, instead of naming a king, he would name a judge. And that person would be there for the trial that was set before them. But the people always knew who the king was. So here we have, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. So these are people from Bethlehem. 
In fact, this will end up being in the line, very close in the line to David, which is probably why we get this story written down. Because here it is, the story of where the king comes from. Now what happens is there's a famine, and so they go into the country of Moab. So they leave Bethlehem and go into Moab. And you can see here, this is kind of the journey that they would have taken. That Bethlehem is on the western side of the Dead Sea. Moab, they would have crossed probably over the top underneath Jericho and come into, across the river Ammon, into Moab. Moab being settled by the, uh, kid you not, the children of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. So if you ever think the Bible isn't full of some interesting stuff, boy. Now, Moab, they would have crossed over to find food in the midst of this famine. Let's go ahead to Ruth 1, 3 through 5. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the women, the woman was left, Naomi, without her two sons and her husband. Now this is an interesting thing because they flee Bethlehem to go to Moab to find food, to find a place outside of this famine. And this is not an unknown story in Scripture. We see this throughout Scripture. You can think of um, back to uh, Joseph, his brothers, when they returned to Egypt looking for food, um, and he's set up in Egypt to help them. Um, you even get Jesus and his parents fleeing from Herod down into Egypt. It is, it is kind of a story of Scripture that people will flee hardship to find and settle somewhere else. Now, a lot of times we see that there is, um, in the Old Testament, there are rules against marrying outside of the people, being the 12 tribes of Israel. Moabites were not on any of those lists of who they could not marry. That Especially at this time, it was seven nations, the seven nations of, of Cana. But the Moabites are not named on that because there's, there's that loose relation to Lot. There's those kinds of things. So the two sons were not breaking any covenantal law by marrying Moabite wives. Let's keep going. Eight through ten, uh, six or seven. Then she arose, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So while she's in Moab, while she sees what's going on, she hears that the famine has ended in Israel, that the Lord has visited them, so she says, you know what, I'm going to go back to the land of my people. Now, what makes this such an interesting thing that we'll keep diving into here in chapter 1 is the way things are set up in culture at that time is that part of being married into a family, part of the family unit, was that care, especially for widows and orphans. That it was the duty of the family 
to take care of the widows and the orphans within their midst. Now, where this gets tricky is the way it's laid out is it is direct relations. So it is fathers, it is sons, it is within that. So now Naomi is saying, I'm going to go back, even though I know I don't have any of this, because I believe my people will care for me better than being on my own in a foreign land. And so Naomi starts this journey knowing that even if she returns home, home will be very different than she remembered. 8 through 10. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. A couple things happening here. First, Naomi looks to have compassion on her daughters-in-law, saying, listen, there's, there's not hope with me. I, I am resigned to this, but if you return to your people, there's chances you can remarry, there's chances your family can take care of you. Return there. Let me go in my sorrow. But I love what she does here. Twice, she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. So that's there, verse 8. As you look at that, May the Lord deal kindly with you. That Lord there, when it's in all caps, that anytime you see that in translations here in English, what that's going back to is in the Ten Commandments, First Commandment, Second Commandment, Third Commandment, you know the commandments. There are ten of them. Do not take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God in vain. Right? So what they did was they didn't want to even get close to that. So they would transliterate the name of God, Yahweh. And by the time it gets to English, it is signified by an all-capitalized Lord. Naomi's deep care she has for her daughters-in-law, the depth of love she has, is that she speaks a blessing over them, unafraid and proud of the name of God. That here, in those Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. There was always protection that if we're not actually saying his name, we won't take it in vain. And here she says, may Yahweh deal kindly with you. May he have a steadfast love for you. So her blessing to them is so deep that she is unafraid to call upon the actual name of the Lord to proclaim a blessing upon them. Twice. I want you to think about this. These two women have lost their husbands. They're traveling with their mother-in-law. And when she says, you can go, their response isn't sweet. Later. They weep. The picture we're going to get of Naomi over the next couple of verses is the deep sorrow she is in. But what I don't want us to miss is that she loved these women to the point that when she says, leave, they weep. It wasn't like they were trudging along 
waiting for her to say leave. And then they were like, oh no, ah, thank you. No, they were heartbroken. And they say, no, we will return with you to your people. And it continues, but Naomi said, no, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even, I, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So they say, no, we're going to stay with you. She goes, no, don't let my sorrow be your sorrow. Now here's this fascinating thing that happens. She goes like, do I still have sons in my womb? And you're going, mom, that's weird. What are you doing? But there's this idea Leverite, say leverite. Let's, come on, let's try that again. It's, past, it's 1050, leverite. There we go, narrative church. Whew, that was good. So this is this idea of marriage that um, when a brother would die, another brother would step in to marry that wife to care for her, to continue the family name, to have a son. Weird. <laughs> like today, very strange. Back then, in the social and societal setup, it was the Lord preparing a way for people to be cared for. He, this seems like, oh, this is, you know, how terrible is this? The woman doesn't get to choose, and listen, we could dive into that, I know, but what I'd ask you to see is that this is the Lord setting it up to say, everyone will be taken care of. That just because a husband dies, a family doesn't get to go, good, we didn't like her anyways but there is care to be had. And what Naomi is saying is, listen, I'm too old to have another husband to be pregnant again. And even if I got pregnant with sons, how long would you be waiting for them to become your husbands? It is hyperbole. She is trying to show them, listen, she's not saying this is going to happen. Think about it, this little baby in 20 years, he could be your husband. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, listen, we're past that point. Return to your people. Then they lifted up their voices again and wept. Real quick, sorry, back one verse. For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is reflected in another part of Scripture in the book of Job. Job has a similar phrase probably a, a phrase used at that time by the people of Israel. It's the verse, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So here as Naomi declares it, she is confessing that while the Lord has allowed this thing to happen to her and it is bitter within her, she is confessing that while the Lord's hand has gone out against me, doesn't have to be against you, and I will sit in that. So we continue. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah leaves, but Ruth says, 
Or Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So we have Ruth looking and saying, I'm not going to leave you. And in fact, the depth of it is she says it poetically. We think poetically and we think rhyme schemes, you know, A-A-B-B-C-C. But in Near Eastern poetry, you rhymed ideas. And so here, what we have in, um, again, let's play some trombone, 16 and 17. Do not urge me to leave a plea against separation. For where will I go? A promise of family loyalty. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. A confession of faith. And then we flip back. Where you die, I will die. A promise of family loyalty. If anything but death parts me from you. An oath against separation. So Ruth tells her in this very poetic fashion, I'm not going to leave you. And the depth of the love that she has for this family that she married into, not only is a love of her mother-in-law, but she says, your God will be my God. That as Orpah leaves, she leaves behind the God of her husbands and of Naomi to return to the gods of Moab. But Ruth's confession is not only of family loyalty, but of a God who she sees through Naomi and through her family. The chapter ends like this. So the two of them went out until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Mara meaning bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Again, going back and reflecting the words of Job. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So as they come back, as they return, Naomi sees her family, sees her friends. And they say, Naomi, you've returned. She's like, no, no, no. I'm not Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Because of the bitterness of my life. As we read this first chapter, as we dive into this story of Ruth, here we see the loyalty and tragedy that Ruth has for her mother-in-law. That she would not be parted even though her life could have possibly been better, could have been easier. Her deep love she has for Naomi keeps her present in the midst of all of this. And in fact, throughout this, 
if you were to dive into some of the, the blessings around the word Yahweh, the Lord, you would see the Hebrew word kesed. Kesed is used specifically to explain the steadfast love and kindness of God. That even as Naomi says, call me bitter, what she may not see in this tragedy happening around her is that the Lord has already provided for her. Because what she doesn't see that she will by the end of this book is that Ruth is the blessing and the providence of God's steadfast love in her life. Now what I love here, what we can learn from Naomi is that she feels it. She feels the sorrow. She says, call me bitter, <clears throat> but she doesn't curse the Lord. She just says, this is what's happened to me. I'm dealing with it. I hate it. I tried to keep everybody out of it, but Ruth came along. That even in the midst of tragedy and sorrow, even in her anger at the situation, she has not cursed God. And then we look at Ruth, an outsider brought in. That here is Ruth, a woman of another culture, of another people, who says, I so love those I have married into that I want to stay. That this is in a long line of story of people that God will use who do not seem to be the right people. And here we see him using the sojourner, the foreigner, at a time when God was very specific to the fact that the people of Israel were his people, that they lived in the land. And here he brings this foreigner in. Because what's fascinating, and what we'll learn as we go through this chapter, is there will be a whole story arc of redemption and care that happens for Ruth as the sojourner. And she will end up being in the line of David, which means she is in the line of Jesus. That we look and we say, God uses people even when we're not looking or expecting, even when we are in our bitterness, that there will be people who step in for his plan. That his loving kindness doesn't end even when we don't see it. That his loyalty to us, even in the midst of tragedy, even when we don't deserve it, even when we sin against him time and again, he says, listen, there's a way. Apparently not for them. <laughs> but there is a way for us. And that even in this first chapter, we see that loving kindness of God that will one day be reflected. See, loving kindness? What? Let's just end. When was the last time you got a honey bun during a sermon? I just kind of want to sit down and have a honey bun. Listen, the unexpected traveler from afar brings the good things. There's the sermon. Jesus has come for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Ruth. We thank you for the example she is. We thank you for Naomi who so deeply loved 
her daughter-in-law, that she said, I see the Lord through you and I want your God to be my God. That Lord, from that simple confession, from the love of a mother-in-law for a daughter-in-law, would one day come the Savior. That Lord, even in this story, we see the reflection of your loyalty to us in the midst of the tragedy of our sin. May we rejoice in you. Amen. Amen.